0: Hello and welcome to Lost in Science, the summer series. My name is Claire, and wherever you are, I hope you're ready for half an hour of some of the best science stories that we just reckon need another go around the airwaves. These are some of our favourites from 2021. And one of the biggest stories of the year was actually, I think, an answer to the question how big is a billionaire's ego? Yes, in 2021, we saw a rocket measuring contest like none other as Elon, Jeff and Richard raced each other to space. So this week we think you need to hear Stu's story once again dishing the science dirt behind the space missions. And did you know that the Black Summer bushfires of 2020 led to an algal bloom the size of Australia. Now this is incredibly fascinating stuff and this week we are bringing it back into the spotlight. You'll hear all about it from oceanographer Christina Schallenberg, what science knows about it and more importantly all about the ocean robots that helped discover it. So I hope you're safe out there this summer. Remember to get yourself vaxxed, get yourself boosted, do whatever you need to do. Hope you're having fun and on with the show.
1: Now we joke around on the show uh, about how science and technology is making the world uh, more like comic books and science fiction over recent years, and and one of the one of the things I, I like to joke around about is potential supervillains appearing as billionaires, or <laughs> is that billionaires who look like supervillain supervillains? It's 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 hard to be sure. Um, so may, maybe maybe they're even superheroes. I can't make up my mind whether Elon Musk is more like Tony Stark, who's Marvel's Iron Man, or if he's more like Bruce Wayne who is uh, Batman from the DC Comics. I'm, I'm not sure which one he might but, be. Or oh, he's like Hank Scorpio <laughs> from <laughs> the I Fences. think
0: we can all agree that Jeff Bezos is Lex Luthor.
1: Well, it, he kind of fits the bill. It's not, it's not just the billions of dollars, you know, that's, that draws a similarity. Um, Sorry, that's, that's hundreds of billions of dollars. Well, Absolutely. for for Jeff Bezos and and some of these other um, people around. But, like, if you look at Elon Musk, uh, some of his ideas sound that, you know, that they're from the realms of the cartoons. They sound cartoonish. The idea of travelling at super high speeds between cities in vacuum tubes, for example, sounds like something from the Jetsons rather than uh, a serious engineering (laughs) suggestion that we could actually build. Well, Um, Who knew?
0: Jetsons were going to be the, the bounty of engineering ideas for the twenty first century.
1: Well, look, I still haven't got a robot made, so I'm, I'm <laughs> still. I think we're a bit behind. There's there's also promises of new technology from Musk all the time. Sort of much more mundane things. The next big thing in batteries, he keeps promising all the time. Um, doesn't seem like it's any closer than the first time it was promised, which was years ago. They haven't they haven't materialized. Uh, but I, think, I his... think we shouldn't forget that he made his fortune really from PayPal um, yeah. rather than from Tesla and Hyperloop. So, yeah, he's he's made his money out of getting a cut of all your tra- financial transactions, essentially. Yeah, yeah, which is, you know, that's a great way to make money, I, I guess. But it, it seems like he spent all his money on, on making cool toys. Um, he certainly shot all sorts of things into space. Uh, Including famously a Tesla car with a space suited mannequin playing David Bowie on the car stereo, um, supposedly to test the payload. Supposedly to test the payload of the rocket, but mainly because it was a cool thing to do, I think he thought, um, adding to the space junk floating around the Earth. I think, probably, as you mentioned, Claire, the most super villainy billionaire candidate is Lex Luthor. I mean, Jeff Bezos. (laughs) Um,. He took. He took a while back. He had a picture taken in a giant mecha suit. Did you see this? The giant robot mecha suit. Oh um, my goodness! Did um, he oh, no. looking? Yeah, yeah, looking very, very super in in you know in a jumpsuit in this giant he, mecha robot thing.
0: It's just he's he's just full on embraced it, hasn't he?
1: Oh yeah, he's leaning into it like nothing else. <laughs> um, but unlike Elon Musk, Bezos is promising to shoot himself into space. Great. I, think his plan- <laughs> I think his plan is to come back, though, oh. after, after after a bit of an orbit uh, or, or a little space flight. He's going to come back, so it's not a permanent um, vacation. But reading up on their respective vision space, I had a look at Elon Musk. Elon Musk thinks that humans have to become multi if we're to survive as a species due to possible cosmic events like asteroids and, you know, biological events like pandemics. And he thinks that if we're on multiple planets, we've got a better chance of survival as as a species. Um, so uh, he's looking at Mars and the moon as human outposts to guarantee our survival into the far future. Now, Jeff Bezos, on the other hand, has much more practical aims for space. He's looking to move all industry especially dangerous industries, off the Earth and into space or onto the moon in order to protect the environment and the people who live in it, which is, you know, it's kind of a nice idea. But basically is looking to make fly-in, fly-out workers leave the planet altogether and then come back, although ultimately most of the labor is planned to be done by robots in the far future, of course, again. Now, this does sound a little bit supervillainy, uh, I think building an army of robots to manufacture things off the planet away from human influence um, I think but... um, I think the super for me the super villainy aspect is that um, he has enough money to toy around with his crazy ideas to actually do whatever he wants doesn 't he have enough money to um, give his employees decent um, working conditions or wages. But, uh, yeah, somehow he's got so much money he can have an army of robots on the moon. But, you know. I mean, you you don't have to be really rich to be a regular villain, though, do you? No. Um, Seriously, it's not necessarily a bad idea to, I think, this idea of moving manufacturing and, and heavy industry off the planet. But the amount of energy it would take to do that, the idea of you know, um, sending raw materials up into space to be manufactured, then brought back down to it. It's a ridiculous amount of energy. And without some sort of huge leap in technology, um, that's not a real possibility. And, and people sort of go, oh, well, what about if we get raw materials from space? If we get asteroids and things like that. Well, we don't have that technology either. So it's still not really a viable solution to our, Um, you know, global industrial pollution problems that we're all sort of stuck with here. But in the meantime, Lex, uh, sorry, I mean, Jeff Bezos has said he's going to take a space flight on July 20th after resigning from Amazon, which he uh, is resigning uh, in a couple of days. I think any day now he's supposed to be resigning as the CEO of Amazon, which is, of course, how he became the richest man in the world. Um, by selling books initially, but now he sells everything. Free delivery next day, blah, blah, whatever. Um, And, and, you know, made a ridiculous amount of profit during the pandemic because everyone was locked at home and they couldn't go out anywhere and buy things, so he sent it all to their house. Um, But look, Elon Musk hasn't even been into space, even though he has built a lot of spaceships. Uh, And Jeff Bezos seems to be doing it so he can be the first owner of a space company to go into space.
0: So is I mean no one's gone into space yet because their rockets keep blowing up, right?
1: The the Elon Musk SpaceX have delivered crew to uh, the ISS and they have had successful crewed okay. space flights. So they're 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 on the they're on the cusp of 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 private space travel really.
0: But Elon's still a bit meh. I think I might just yeah, wait a few it, it, more, a few more ISS manned missions before I get
1: in. He he seem, he seems to be very happy to uh, you know field the questions at the press conferences, but not so happy to strap into the uh, to the launch <laughs> yeah. module. Um, but Jeff is Jeff is jumping in there. So the company owned by Bezos is called Blue Origin. This will be their first crewed flight of a spacecraft called New Shepard, which is named after Alan Shepard. Who was an Apollo astronaut and the first American in space? So, Jeff's kind of positioning himself in that pioneering space there. Um, Of course, as we started talking about, uh, started out talking about comic book storylines, there is a late contender and an older grey haired man with a beard has jumped in at the last minute to add a plot twist. Hank Pym, the original Ant Man. No, wait, it's actually Richard Branson, British entrepreneur and possibly the first billionaire with designs on spaceflight. He launched Virgin Galactic in 2004. You know, this is, this is the old school um, entrepreneurial billionaire spaceflight. Um, they haven't done anything. They haven't really got any launches up there yet, even though Virgin Galactic went public as a company a couple of years ago. So they're still around. They're still going. But... Richard Branson is planning a trip on his spaceship two craft, which is named Unity, and he is, of course, launching on July eleventh, which will be a clear nine days before Jeff Bezos. And you know, it, it's hard to see this as anything other than a, uh, you know, a, a pissing contest. Really, is is mm. it how I would put it down to. Um, it's 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 uh, a whole lot of. Um, you know, competition between rich old men. Um mm. but despite launching nine days earlier, he probably won't beat him into space. And this is because Spaceship Two is not actually built to go into space. It skims along just inside the edge of the atmosphere at just under ninety kilometers up. Um and space So it's got a good it's got a good name, Spaceship Two. Yeah, it's um yeah, it's 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 not, not just a good name. I don't know. <laughs> so space begins at the Kármán line, which is 100 kilometres above the average sea level. Spaceship 2 can't go that high. It's designed for tourism. It's just to take people up on a trip and let them be weightless for about four minutes and then come back down. So Jeff Bezos will be the first billionaire spaceship owner to get into space by, um, by all estimates. Uh, he's also, though... And I think this is something um, to to take away from this story. He's also taking another space pioneer with him, someone who's been waiting to go into space since the middle of last century. So Mary Wallace Funk, or Wally Funk, trained in the Mercury program to demonstrate that women could pass the physical tests re- required to be in the space program in in NASA in the uh, in the fifties and sixties none of the women who participated in the training were allowed to fly, that none of them actually got to go into space. Um, So now Wally is blasting off with Jeff Bezos on the 20th of July at age 82. So she's finally going to make it into space and into the record books as the oldest person ever to go into space.
0: Wow. So she's
1: yeah it is amazing and you know i guess uh, the 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 weight that she's had to endure to actually get a trip into space sometimes the trip to space isn't a race it's a waiting game
0: So the black summer bushfires left millions of hectares of charred earth, loss of human and animal life, and many of us choking on the smoke in cities and regional areas. But what happened to the smoke after the fire? Where did it go? And what effect has it had on the ecosystem? Now, someone who has been asking this question and now has some answers is researcher Christina Schallenberg from the University of Tasmania. And Christina joins us this week. Welcome to Lost in Science.
2: Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure.
0: Now, Christina, tell us where does smoke go after a big fire like the Black Summer bushfires?
2: So that's actually not really my area of expertise. But from what we can tell based on satellite imagery, well, first of all, it goes up in the atmosphere and then it can be transported by, you know, the winds and the transport mechanisms of the atmosphere into all sorts of directions. And from what I understand, these particular bushfires were so intense that smoke and ash and other particles actually went higher into the atmosphere than is usually the case. And therefore, they could also be transported farther, um, just stronger winds up there, I suppose. And also, it takes them longer to come back down. So ultimately, I assume they all come back down, or it's certainly a large percentage. And that's what happened in the study um, that I was part of. So we we could see with our instrumentation that a large part of um, the ash from, well, maybe it wasn't even a large part, to be honest, but a part that we could measure um, ended up in the Pacific ocean. So in the South Pacific between New Zealand and um, South America. And it was a patch of ocean that was um, larger than Australia. Wow. Uh, and we could, we could connect this deposition of the ash um, and the particles that were you know, rose with the ash in the atmosphere. It's actually also dust particles and like earth, probably all sorts of things that are being kind of sucked up into the atmosphere along with the, with the smoke. So we can tell that these, these particles ended up in the ocean and there they fertilized an algae bloom. So it's a Mm -hmm. part of the ocean that has one particular problem, which is it doesn't have enough iron. So any kind of ocean, well, phytoplankton, let's talk about phytoplankton. So they're actually little, uh, macroscopic unicellular plants that okay. photosynthesize, so they're like any plants um, on land as well. They're green. They do the same thing as any you know of your house plants would do, um, and for that they need nutrients and light, obviously. And so there's always going to be some limiting nutrient unless the light is the limiting factor. So there's always something that stops growth at some level, otherwise it would just go forever. Right. And in the Southern Ocean, the thing that's really stopping the growth is um, iron. So it's really just this element that we can think of. is the one thing, it's like a vitamin for us. They don't need much of it, but it's absolutely essential that they have it. And in the Southern Ocean, in part because there's not many land masses there to um, pro- provide the iron, that's actually a very iron-limited region. So, And we could measure in the dust particles like some of them actually were transported into different regions for example into Tasmania and there was a measuring station where we intercepted some of these particles and we could measure that there was iron in them and that this, that this iron in particular was actually a little bit more soluble which means it was more readily going into the water so that the algae could take it um, than otherwise like other particles would be.
0: And was this happening in different parts of the world as well or was, is it sort of localised specifically to this sort of like area between New Zealand and South America because of the sort of winds and, and weather patterns around the Pacific Ocean?
2: That's a very good question. So there's actually several answers to this. One would be we don't really know because we don't always look for this. So in this particular case, even here, it was a sort of coincidence that one of the researchers involved was actually looking for this sort of thing in a different region. And then when this fire happened, um, I don't actually know who had the original idea to then say, look, we should really look if something ended up, you know, elsewhere and we could see something. And this is the biggest bloom that I'm talking about, the one between New Zealand and South Mm -hmm. America. There was actually another one south of Australia as well. That was quite intense. But there were also areas where we're quite sure that particles, at least they had a very high concentration in the atmosphere and chances are they ended up in the ocean, but there was no response. And that's probably mm-hmm. because the phytoplankton in these areas were not missing what the ash could bring them. So right. it, it really has to be matching. But in theory, um, and we do know that for dust, like from desert storms and stuff, we do, do know that dust fertilizes the ocean. So we know that there is a land-sea connection um, that is well established. So this sort of thing happens all the time to some degree, but we're not always looking as one problem. Mm. Um, and the other one is that you have to have the right match between what you bring in from the atmosphere and what is actually missing in the ocean.
0: So you're using sort of phytoplankton and algae uh, sort of interchangeable here, but yeah. um, they are small plants um, and you say that they absorb the carbon dioxide. Does that mean, you know, an algal bloom here um, on such a large extent, potentially the size of Australia? Is that a good thing? Is that, is that, um, is that absorbing carbon dioxide from our atmosphere?
2: It is definitely doing that. Um, Well, I'm not sure about the atmosphere part. Definitely for the phytoplankton to grow, we know they have to take up carbon dioxide. And there is always carbon dioxide also already dissolved in the water. So, you know, that's first what they take up. And only if there's enough of a deficit and enough time will that then be resupplied from the atmosphere. So there will always be a lag. But we do know we could calculate that the carbon dioxide that would have been taken up by this particular bloom was equivalent roughly to what was actually coming out from the bushfire. So it was a huge amount of carbon dioxide that would have been absorbed by these phytoplankton. And that part we can be quite confident about. What we do not know is where the phytoplankton really ended up. I don't assume that it's been a bad thing for the ocean because it was actually not a very high concentration. The The thing that made it big was partly its size, its extent. And the other part is that there is so little phytoplankton usually in this area of the ocean. And at this time of year, it would actually have been in decline. Mm. So that was kind of a double whammy that, you know, you really didn't need much to actually get a huge response. And so we don't know where these phytoplankton ended up. Therefore we don't know where the carbon dioxide ended up only if this kind of bloom sank, which is very unlikely in this case, if it had sunk all the way to the deep ocean, then it would be sequestered for about a thousand years or more. But that is an unlikely thing to have happened, I would say. It's more likely that whatever eats phytoplankton, like some zooplankton, say, like that's just tiny animals that can't really swim against the current, that they might have, you know, had a windfall and then someone else ate these guys. And so maybe there could be a good recruitment of some sort of fish for a year. And it's definitely not been a strong enough concentration of phytoplankton that I would expect any bad effects. So I wouldn't expect any low oxygen zones to develop from this sort of thing. Um, certainly not just from a single event like that. But yeah, we actually couldn't study the, um, the fate of these phytoplankton. So we don't know for sure where they ended up. And if they just got recycled and things just got eaten, then the, the carbon dioxide would basically have just come back out very shortly after.
0: Now you mentioned that this has this research has just been published in nature. I'm fascinated to hear from you what sort of what sort of tools you use to measure an algal bloom the size of Australia. How do you and your fellow researchers go about this
2: That's actually been one of the very exciting aspects of this research that we used very novel technologies um, without which it would not even have been possible to find such a bloom because there's no research vessels just hanging out there waiting for something interesting to happen, nor could you just fund a you know research voyage on short notice just hoping that you could find something. So this was really all based on autonomous measurements. So one thing being satellites, which have been out there for 30, 40 odd years now. So they're not as novel anymore in a way, but they still keep getting better and better in their sensitivities and what they can do. And so the main part in a way, for this research or the first inkling that anything interesting was going on was all from satellites. So the satellites both showed us where the um, particles in the atmosphere went. Mm. Um, And it also then showed us um, what happened in the ocean. So there's sensors that can sense the color of the ocean. So ocean color sensors, and they're more sensitive than our eyes. So our eyes actually probably would not have detected anything amiss in this bloom. Um, But the satellite, sensors could tell that there was basically a greening of the ocean and that's how we could get the extent of this uh, of the area of the bloom Um, but also we wanted to be sure because you know when you have stuff in the atmosphere and you're trying to sense the color of the ocean you might have actually some sort of bias or something so we were Mm -hmm. a little bit worried that what the satellite showed us wasn't actually what we thought we were looking at Um, so we wanted to be sure we're really measuring the right thing and that's where these ocean robots came in and were very very handy so they're a bunch of robots out in the ocean at any given time these days. It's about 4,000 we're aiming for at all times.
0: There are 4,000 robots in the yes. ocean yes. at any one time. Just um, the Pacific Ocean or is that all oceans? Oh, ocean? that's the
2: world ocean. <laughs> so Anywhere where it's deep enough. So they need at least 2,000-meter depth for the most part. Wow. Um, and they're very excited. What are exciting. they doing? Well, they, they measure do. things Great. when they're not sleeping. <laughs> so what they do is they hang out usually at 1,000-meter depth. Um, and they spend 10 days there roughly. And then they wake up and then they go to 2000 meters. So they sink deeper. And then they come all the way up, which takes them like six to 10 hours, depending. Um, and on the way up, they measure. And they measure a bunch of things depending on what type of robot they are. So they're called Argo floats. And once they're done measuring, they come to the surface and they actually come through the surface. They have a little antenna. They talk to the satellite and say, here's my data. Please take it. And then they go back down. So yeah, they, they do that all the time on these 10-day cycles. It's very exciting. Wow. Most of them measure only two things, I should say. So there's a lot of floats that measure temperature and salinity. And that's really important for our weather forecasts, even these days. And yeah, for ocean circulation measurements, all sorts of things. But there are a few floats. Well, I shouldn't say a few. Um, we're aiming for a thousand at any given time. I think we're a bit short of that at the moment. But they're called biogeochemical floats. And they have six additional sensors. And these sensors are all to measure things like particles in the water, phytoplankton in particular, even nutrients, how much light is there, the pH, and oxygen. So they measure a bunch of other things. Um, And so we were lucky that three of these floats were in the area of the bloom. And so with these, we could be sure that really in the water, something unusual was going on. And that really helped, I think, make this a punchy paper that, you know, had enough grid to really, you know, be also high level paper because otherwise you could have said, Oh, just the satellite stuff, who knows? It could have, you know, had some biases or something. So it was really cool to bring all these things together and also bring all these experts together because any of these data sources are not stuff that you just I mean, you can download pictures these days, but to do proper analysis, you kind of have to be an expert at it. So all these people work together um, and brought their expertise. And that was actually part of the fun of this paper.
0: Now, you know uh, that these algal blooms are happening in in the Pacific. Um, What are the next sort of steps within your research?
2: So I'm not doing this myself, but I'm supervising or co-supervising, I should say, a PhD student who's working, who was also on this uh, paper that was just published, but he is now also doing the next step of analysis and looking in more depth, not just how much phytoplankton was there, which is what we've so far gotten from the satellites, but he's also looking at, can we say anything about what sort of phytoplankton? Were they big? Were they small cells? Did they change? Did the community change at all? even he can look a little bit at, were they happy? Because one thing that happens when you give them iron, there's actually a signal that's called phytoplankton fluorescence that can change in response to this iron input, even before they start to grow. So basically, you know, they notice something good is happening and the cells change in some some fashion. And then it takes them a while to actually pick up the growth. And so he's looking into that sort of signal to just try to get a better idea of what actually happened out there. Well, Christina, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Science today to talk
0: us through your research and, yeah, the environmental flow-on effects that are happening after the um, bushfire devastation in 2019 and 2020, and also letting us know that there is a... Huge, I don't want to say army, let's say community of ocean robots um, out there, uh, which has just blown my mind. Um, so, Christina, best of luck for the next stages of the research. And um, yeah, come back on Lost in Science anytime and talk about what those ocean robots are up to.
2: Cool. Thank you very much.
0: That's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation in the studios of 3CR and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us at lostinsightgmail.com, find us on Twitter where we are Lost in Science 1, or find us on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or just tune in again next week when Claire, Stu and Chris get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to
2: www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.